Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy, Managing Director of Midstream Strategy at East Daily Capital. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. In today's podcast, Trisha disrobes. <laughs> I just took off my green jacket. How about that for a teaser? It's March 17th, 2021, St. Patty's Day. And we are here today to talk about China, the Chevron Analyst Day, some oil price stuff, and Joe Biden's policies, which Trisha just loves. Um, inflation, oil prices, and we're also talking about the awesome uh, IEA oil report that came out today, which is Stored a lot of controversy if you've seen the forecast. But we're going to start with St. Patrick's Day because we've been talking about drinking Guinness on the podcast for actually probably every episode and all the froth on the market. And I think given um, the Fed's and Powell's statements, they have not cooling anything off. It's perfectly timely. Oh, that's brilliant. And yeah. we also, every St. Patty's Day, my family drinks to my mom being 36 years in remission from breast cancer. So here we go. Frothy market and to my mom, Sarah Bellamy, awesome. 73 today. Also, so I was grumpy with Ethan because he showed up late and he recovered himself well um, because we're not just drinking Guinness. We're drinking nitro cold brew coffee. And if you if anyone knows me of knowing that I'm a, like a coffee fanatic and they, if they know me from like my past, like my London School of Economics days and stuff, I love Guinness. Like it's I've always loved Guinness. I like Coors Original too. And your Twitter handle is? Trisha J. Coffee. There we go. Um, but my parents, like we as tradition, we drink green beer. So later I'll be putting droplets of green dye into my Coors Original. But this is nitro cold brew coffee and it is, um, it's not bad, is it? Pretty damn good. It's pretty good. I like it. So let's dive in. Yep. Where do you want to start? China. China or oil prices? I think we should start with the oil prices and just the, how... Our oil prices being too hot to handle. And, you know, Robert and I talked about this in the, in the last podcast, but... The Robert Norton. The Robert Norton who stepped in for you while you were on vacation. I mean, he tried. Yeah, he did. He did try. Ever, he didn't he have is the, actually a very smart man, besides being extremely handsome. Mm-hmm. All the ladies love him, but he's married. So, there you go. He is married. Right. Uh, so... Trisha is not. By the way, we can get into that later. Yeah, the key to Trisha's heart is don't bring her flowers, bring her coffee and beer. Or coffee, beer together. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that gets discussed quite a bit at the, when I, I did the Digital Wildcatter podcast, which hasn't been released, and it was just Jake and I talking, and it got really personal, and there was a lot of questions about the I can't wait for that. Um, Jake Corley uh, is the best backward baseball hat interviewer in media today. <laughs> He is. He's. He makes it really. He makes what do you expect really, from a marine? Uh, easy to talk to and casual. So okay, oil market. Um, we talked before about this being too hot to handle, and I think given the inflationary pressures and everything we're hearing, mortgage rates. I just checked with my my mortgage guy today. If you looked at CNBC today, it was like the a thirty years three point four percent. And if you were to go to a mortgage guy or gal and get a mortgage today, it's like three point four five percent. Many of you have probably refin were in the refi craze if you had a house and probably were able to refinance sub three percent, which was a re- rock bottom record lows. 3.45%, by the way, is not that high in terms of a 30-year mortgage, historically speaking. It's not that bad. However, given what we've seen in Denver, I mean, with the houses going 
it's bananas in pricing. I, we were talking about lumber pricing today. Everything's going crazy and oil prices are a huge piece of this sort of inflationary thing in addition to copper and metals and minerals and everything. And this does seem to always come back. And to- we should also say that the stock market is in a bubble. It's definitely, I think it's- It's it, in a bubble, no question about it. Well, the whole, um, I had to, I didn't even know what these things were. The digital art that's yes. going for, like, I'm sorry, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to put on my computer up here and like stare at it? What the F is that? Like digital art. So that's going for millions. That, that's when you know where, that is definitely .com. Like it, digital art is is total crap. And then then the, the tokens <laughs> thing, is it like, it's like digital art, the token, so Dogecoin. I kind of get the, you know, the Bitcoin thing's fine. I'm, I'm, it, it is what it is. You know, it's, it's a, I can, I can see how people might want to value as a separate store, of, store value given a, a hedge against inflation. We're seeing same, we're seeing that in gold and everything. But this is just not the digital art. And then what was that EFT or it's called NFT? NFT is yes. that the digital art? Yeah. Well, the, the concept of if you saw or read Ready Player One is that we're going to be living in a virtual world and people are going to want virtual artwork. And if you look at the froth on the art market, then that translates into the digital economy. So I thought crypto was the best example of, and I'm talking altcoins. Um, I thought that was the best example of froth and too much liquidity in the marketplace. But it turns out that the real answer to that is NFT. Yes. So it's fake just- digital artwork, people selling tweets. And I tweeted, actually, that the best battle going today is um, Peter Schiff versus his son over crypto. Um, so check that out if you haven't already. It's very entertaining. I don't but, even know what he's talking about right now. Well, so. you have a life and don't do Twitter like I do. But no. I thought we were going to talk about oil prices here. Yeah, so okay. talking about oil prices, this whole question, like, are they too hot to handle? And I think, you know, I was talking to my my former boss today in D.C. and the we, we were just saying if prices are pushing $3 a gallon, you're feeling this is literally a taxation on people. So we just passed this nearly $2 trillion stimulus package, which, again, is a huge component of why we're why we're seeing inflationary pressures. Nobody was that concerned about real inflation until your economy is doing well. You have, it's all coming together from this, this boom in um, one uh, thinking there'll be a huge boom in electric vehicles and in the auto manufacturing sector and particularly in batteries. And then there's also the, so then you have, and you have the stimulus measures um, and you have this big push on the electric vehicle side. Um, so there's, there's this hope. And so copper's going up and everything's going up. And obviously demand for oil and gas is going up. That's hence why we're seeing um, oil prices go up, but we also have all these barrels sitting on the sideline. And then the stimulus package is t- being $2 trillion and the economy is looking pretty good. That's why everybody's freaking out and, and questioning Powell so hard today because they're wanting to know when they're going to start moving, you know, they're going to start reducing quantitative easing. And they said and the to, answer is they're not. Well, they said they're going to start on the front end of it, of the not on the back end. So they're going to start reducing the asset purchasing to some degree. It, it was very muted. It was still very, very dovish. But and very they, dovish. They kicked out the whole <laughs> and they kicked out the, the they said they want full, full unemployment, which they broadened that phrase of employment and they're okay with letting the the economy run a little hot with higher inflation and they kicked it out till another year so they basically it was kind of open in 2022 we could see a rate hike now it's like 2020 2024 which i think it's one the treasury is already doing it for you the yields are already going up we're already seeing the the we're already seeing the market do it on the treasury side so maybe the fed doesn't have to do anything but i think they're gonna have to do it anyways i think okay so tie this back to oil for me what does this mean well oil is a component of it 
of that whole inflationary piece and people are feeling it. It's the, one of the first things that they're feeling of when they're, they're, it's, as you've mentioned before, it's a regressive tax. I mean, this is a tax and it actually hits your, your lower income most. And, uh, India has already come out and said they're, I mean, forecasters and analysts are saying that India, they're revising their GDP forecast because this, these are inflationary. In addition to other metals and things um, and commodities, India is seeing this very high oil prices. And they've been, they've been pretty vocal in calling OPEC to say, come on, let's loosen up the taps a little bit. And I think what we're going to have to see, Paul Sankey made a comment on CNBC this week. Of, Crude gusher. Um, crude gusher. That's what? his Twitter handle. Oh, yeah. Anyways, I don't know his Twitter handle because I'm obviously not on Twitter enough. But Paul Sankey, I just know him because he's on all the earnings calls and <clears throat> you see him on the, we saw him on the Chevron Investor Day. Anyway, so he got on CNBC and he said it would have been really nice to see OPEC bring some barrels back on just to see how the market would have handled it. And I agree. And so most analysts did not, you know, the March 4th when they, when OPEC said they, OPEC plus said they were going to keep barrels um, off the market. By the way, they didn't keep all the barrels off the market. So I think the Saudis probably worked closely with the media and said, don't let this out very much. But they didn't keep all the barrels off. They allowed Russia to produce another 280,000 barrels per day. And they allowed Kazakhstan <clears throat> to produce another 40,000 barrels. Per allowed Putin to do anything is hilarious. Yeah. So, I mean, they're doing these barrels. It's not a ton of crude, It's but it's enough to be like, okay, we'll make mm. you happy. Now, look, this is also the first time in history or not. I'm sorry, not the first time. This is the first time in very recent history that it's never been so profitable to cheat. So we've seen incredible OPEC compliance. And part of the reason we've seen such incredible OPEC and OPEC plus compliance is because they've changed the terms, right? You don't, you're not restricting condensate production. So in some ways, the market, they've been able to offset crude production by increasing condensate output. And that means they can literally go take, go to their natural gas reserve and they can increase natural gas production and increase condensate production. So it kind of works out, which also tells you that the market's done pretty good in handling, absorbing those barrels. But what's interesting is that all these countries now are looking at this and you're looking at $70 Brent. It's, it looks nice. It would be a good time to start eking out a few more barrels because their budgets, their budget deficits are looking so much better. I mean, the Saudis just went to the bond market and were able to borrow at negative interest rates. I mean, this is a, it, it's really healed up the Middle East in a, in a real way. And I think this is kind of what's fascinating is if you follow what the investments going on in the Middle East, and if, if you follow all that, yes, they're investing in renewables and they're, they're, they're doing some solar and, um, and they're talking about hydrogen and green and blue, different you know, colors of, of variations of hydrogen, which we can get into. But it's interesting because it, it does seem like a very different world than the whole very deep energy transition stuff that we hear on a, you know, daily basis. And then if you're in the energy community and you're studying this stuff, you're kind of inundated with it. And I took a liberty to dive as deep as I could get into this energy transition thing, which we, this is the dialogue that I would, I would like to get into. Very surprising. But before we get to that, yes, before please. we get to that, uh, a couple things. Let's get back to your core thesis on what the right price for oil is, number one. And number two, how high does oil go when it, uh, how high does oil have to go to start impeding demand and destroying demand because prices are too high? I think it's already to a point where it's impeding <clears throat> demand growth in the emerging markets. So you're already at a point where China and India are in, re where the globe is still in recovery mode. So it, as well as the globe is doing in getting out of the pandemic. And I think as we've all, we've talked about significantly on pent up demand in the market, it still is more of a, it's a benefit if, if prices were lower um, and lower for longer and more stable is going to be better for long-term demand. And if you're, if you're an OPEC country and thinking about this, so letting, you know, oil prices going to 70, right. As you're recovering out of the demand, 
maybe it's doable, it's survivable, people are going to pay for it, but you may not know what true demand could have been like if oil prices had stayed at 60 or if oil prices had stayed at 55 because that uptake might have been more significant. And all this talk that's coming out on reducing that, nobody's talking, nobody on the energy transition side is even really talking about oil prices in the way that in technically the, the way that they should be. But I think the right prices, I mean, I'm going to be wrong. I, I think I, I was I was happy that I was really right about oil prices in 2020. Obviously, I, I think they're too hot to handle now. It doesn't mean they can't keep going up. It doesn't mean that OPEC plus can come out next month and say, hey, we're not going to put any barrels back. We'll let, we'll let Russia have another 100,000 barrels a day. We'll let a couple countries have a little bit, but we're not going to add. And it's if you look at how how the recovery is done in Saudi Arabia, I mean, the Saudis have increased their VAT tax, but they've seen inflation because of it. And I'm, I think I mentioned that in some previous podcasts, but that's been that's not good for their economy. Do you, do you think so you some of your clients and you can just talk about who they are or not, or probably not, but are you, you service some OPEC clients. And my one of my questions is, do you think that they are testing U.S. shale? to see if our rig counts start spiking to take advantage of these new prices? Or do they believe that they actually, the companies actually are going to at least attempt to live within free cash flow and not overspend CapEx? Um, so, I mean, I have worked with, OPEC, I mean, I've, at least I've briefed OPEC countries and I've worked with some in the past, but well, you I don't think, have to downplay your, I, your I think, skills. <laughs> I think that, um, I don't think they're currently testing shale. I think they still, the interesting stuff, if I've been following a lot of really recent work on from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies on the energy transition and a ton of stuff they've been doing on perspectives of of OPEC players in Russia. And I still think they're very the Russians are very off in that they they have this view, um, they have this view that that oil prices need to be $70 a barrel for shale to work. Well, shale's been coming back. And and I just checked the Permian rig count. We're at 220 rigs in the Permian Basin. And so it's recovered nicely. We had this dip in New Mexico after the, you know, the, the moratorium scare. And then it kind of has picked back up again. And they're just, they are misreading. Um, I think they're misreading the U.S. The one thing they are talking about more, and OPEC is, the Saudis and OPEC are talking about, is the constrained regulatory environment. So Biden has sort of just given them a huge gift. And I think it's given them a lot of liber- more flexibility. I mean, we're at 11 million barrels per day in the U.S. And that has given considerable flexibility for OPEC Plus to maneuver right now and to do a little bit more because we haven't brought these barrels back along uh, too, very fast. The, I think that, People are probably there's a risk that the market is underestimating the ability of small players collectively to make a dent in production. And when we see 220 rigs, all these rigs are and everybody says, oh, we've capped out. We've tapped out on drilling efficiencies like I'm sorry, I, I Diamondback mentions it in the earnings call that how you know how how long their laterals are. And I just double checked it on my data and it was incredible because they do beat. how long are they now? They're, they have some areas in some counties that are north of 10,000 feet, and they crush it. They, they basically said, well, we're getting the days, the speed at which they can drill them and the ladder lengths that they're doing are longer and the speed is faster. And so if you just if you take some of these operators and you just look at the benchmark for, you know, what is the average by county and then you pull up like a diamond back and some other big players, they're, they far exceed it. And that's pretty significant because those those incremental efficiency gains taken together, they're really, really meaningful. So your barrels your barrel per foot can stay flat, but if you're still extending that lateral and you're still getting that, 
you don't see the diminishing marginal returns. And some people then ask me, well, that doesn't, you know, they're going to see the diminishing marginal returns. Well, when they do, they'll stop. They won't go that far. They'll stop. They don't, they're about saving money. You know, if this doesn't make economic sense to them, they're not going to do it. So that's, that's just an important component. And I, I think that the Permian is probably, is probably going to surprise in some ways to the upside this year because we'll get to it surely, but on Chevron's investor day, I mean, they really didn't, they really did emphasize this short cycle that they're going, they're pivoting back to the Permian. COVID was one thing. Now they're back in the Permian and they're back in all unconventionals. And this was going to be their, their short cycle growth story. Okay. So let's go to the energy transition. Cause I know you're itching to talk about developments in that area. And I know you have a lot of contacts in Washington, some of whom don't entirely share your political persuasions of being a, a Northern Colorado, Wyoming type of girl. So uh, what do you think is happening in DC? And is there a disconnect with real world energy and DC policy right now? Uh, well, this should be a bit of a discussion because I want you to chime in on this as well. But I think it's, I really, I, I told Ethan I wanted to bring this up because I think, I think the the terms energy transition are paid, and you hear it in a lot of digital wildcatter podcasts and stuff, but I think it's paid lip service and that it's nobody's defining what energy transition actually means. Those are two words that, um, it's it just thrown out quite a bit. And we say them in the, we say them in the oil and gas industry and we're like, oh, it's the energy transition and no one's defining it. And I think it's really important to understand where it's coming from. So I have actually, when I get frustrated with things, I typically just research my way through it until I, I feel more comfortable. And so I have spent a lot of days on hydrogen and ch- what's actually happening in China and are they using all that coal. But, but do you have a good definition of energy no, transition? I, I think it, I think it changes between who's saying it. So in it simplistically, energy transition is meaning that we we are transitioning from fossil fuels to another form of uh, another form of energy. What the existing world that we live in is we are using fossil fuels, coal predominantly, um, still in in the power sector, but we have a lot of we have increasingly amounts of wind and solar, and we have natural gas. Um, I don't even know if you would define that as a transition as so much as you're adding renewables into your grid. Where And now this talk right now and the executive orders with regards to electric vehicles. Now, 2020 was a, a bang up year for electric vehicle sales, but was another thing was a bang up year for sales was internal combustion engines, um, use internal combustion engine sales, which is really important when we get into this new IEA report that they talk about because they disregard the fact that, you know, you and I may want a you know, we may want an internal combustion engine um, in the winter in Colorado or Wyoming or, God forbid, North Dakota, that we may want a, a gasoline vehicle to drive around in the winter because the battery Tesla may not quite have the range issue, you know, the range. And in the city, when you don't drive around, it doesn't matter. But actually in the country, I mean, I was thinking of driving home for Christmas, like it's a huge deal. You have to have that, like people don't shut down the way we do in the, in the cities. So I think this just the concept of energy transition, and I digress a bit, is this you know, you're moving from one source of fuel to another. And, but it's been the, the COVID-19 collapse in oil prices were the, was the catalyst. And I, I had been thinking about that a lot before of what was really driving it. But it was actually, I think, from an academic perspective, when I looked at Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, just did this huge report. They put out this forum thing and it's all on the, basically the geopolitics of energy. And it, it's essentially they call it the out with the old and in with the new, but it's basically all this energy transition. They go through every level of it. But it, to me, did strike me, especially for Oxford, as being very academic. And I know some of the, the policy people in there that wrote this stuff. And I was I was shocked at how, um, how hopeful and wishful thinking it was in terms of a geopolitical end standpoint and how naive it was in thinking that 
energy security issues would be reduced because we wouldn't be using as much oil. And that to me was really shocking is that the energy, the academic perspective, the energy transition assumes that we are just going to rapidly decline our oil consumption. And the IEA, the report came out with that today, also assumes that. And that rapid decline would mean that, you know, we would, with next year and the year after, we would just be uptaking massive electric vehicles and declining our use of, of oil. And even if you were to do that in the developed world, it's very hard to see that like happening elsewhere. And your costs right now on your these electric vehicles, let's set aside the massive inflationary pressures we're seeing on batteries, which are going to be translated into the cost for electric vehicles and the semiconductor issues we're having and just the chips for, for regular vehicles. All this stuff is going to be inflationary vehicle. When you're going to go buy a new car, it's going to suck. Because um, it's going to be very expensive, and that does not do well for uptake. But from an academic perspective, I think the biggest shocking point was that they basically used uh, the COVID nineteen price collapse, the uh, the price collapse and the demand collapse. So you know, probably at the bottom of it, we saw or the height of it, we saw a forty million barrel day collapse, and that was used as sort of this premise of this is what it could look like. And this is I'm kind of theorizing a little bit, but in all my research, that's what I'm seeing is that. This 40 million barrel day demand collapse was like, this is what it could be. And, you know, we could be, you, and that's where this whole mental thinking of coming out of this cleaner, greener, and stronger, you know, is like, this is what it could be. And I, and that was when you shut the world down. You literally stayed in your houses and you didn't move. Like, the, it was horrible. I mean, from from a, every perspective you can think of. But nature's healing. Um, and I it mean, was. That was the, that was the rallying cries. Human, you know, people are stopping their their activity, but, but the world is getting better. Uh, people the, were dying and, yeah. um, and the world is healing. I mean, so the, <laughs> it, it's just a very, it's an extreme. And I think if people are using the COVID economic collapse, the COVID economic shutdown, which was a, a chosen force induced economic crisis as a, as to thinking about that's how the energy transition is going to look, you're way off base. Like, let, I'm let me pay, let me play. Cause I believe that you know, Americans would revolt if they had to pay German power prices, as just one example, um, in terms of choice and saying, hey, I'm going to force you to buy an EV versus, you know, buying an ICE vehicle. That's one thing. There's also a battle coming, you know, basically having California level um, cafe standards for the entire United States. I think that one of the reasons the Biden administration is being very aggressive now is because we're on the tail end of the shale boom and we still have excess supply. We haven't recovered enough. And we're far enough away from the next presidential election that you can push through policies that that might not be politically appetizing when that comes around. So I think that's part of the reason for the speed and why we're going to see a lot more on that front. Um, but with respect to the uh, the specific energy transition goals that we see arising in the in the IEA, for example, it looks to me like they are starting from the premise that we are at net zero at 2050 and working backwards as forecasts. And there's a huge disconnect between what's actually happening and what actual consumer preferences are and that goal. And that's where the policy and sort of academic conundrum comes from. Well, are you seeing the same thing? It's Yeah. And I think that that's what's concerning to me is that, look, as, as people in this business, we you all have to be humble. And and we talk, I talked about this with, with Robert in the last podcast was that um, both Boston Consulting Group and that, that's the, a problem for him. What the humble thing? Um, oh, well, just <laughs> just take it. Uh, <laughs> so both, it's also a problem for you. Uh, Touche. Keep going. Anyways, so Boston Consulting Group and BP, as we mentioned in the, in the last podcast, had in the IEA IEF 
um, OPEC meeting in Riyadh in, in February, they had both said explicitly that the market was misaligned in terms of understanding where ESG was at and, you know, the market investing in it and then where actually oil investment needed to be. And it frustrated me because I thought that both um, these entities and, and Boston Consulting Group, it's, it's, I'm not ripping on them so much as BP needs to do a better job of coming out and explaining that then to analysts and to forecasters and to people on Wall Street of what's actually going on. And the problem I have with it is that nobody is doing forecasting. And all of us, if you're in the business, you have to be humble because your forecast is going to be wrong. I pride myself when I do a two-year forecast on production that it's usually pretty bang on because I have decent scenarios and I know what I'm doing. But it's a two-year forecast. It's pretty short. And even that has errors. And I know I'm going to be wrong. And when you work with clients, you basically give them a range. And an economist gives you 20 different answers uh, for everything. That's just how it is. The, the thing I'm having trouble with is the IEA last year when they came out with their big report had said, and they were in line with BP, one of one of BP's scenarios on peaking demand basically in 2019 or r- roughly around there. And they said that we want to emerge from this cleaner and we want to re- emerge from the crisis cleaner and greener. And that's fine, but it's not fine if you are the International Energy Agency and your job is to be, is to be using data and telling us what's, telling the world what's going to happen. And it seems like there's a problem there if they're if they're advocating now um, versus if they're giving out data. There's very few reliable sources, and even even IEA doesn't have a clear line of sight on OECD, which is your your developed country uh, stockpiles. So they show you you have to pay several thousand a year, but you you can get the monthly report, which is what I have that monthly report that shows you the OECD stockpiles. If you follow the market, I mean the banks are all over the map. Are we, are we doing a structure of a million barrels a day? Is it two million barrels a day? Some banks think it's four million barrels a day. It's, it's a pretty wide range. We don't even know. You know who has data that's open and granular? It's the US. So if you, the only thing you can actually bank on is Cushing Stocks Weekly, which came out today. Like if you want to know, we have it. So we typically, people focus on that. I have another side comment on, on companies maybe being penalized, US production maybe being penalized for for actually showing the carbon because we're going to be the most, we're going to have the data and no one else is going to show it. But that, it's really important because the International Energy Agency, this IEA thing, and it's, so I don't think it's public. I think I tried to share it with Ethan and I couldn't because I I had purchased it. No, but don't say that. Don't violate the terms of use. I, I think I was, I was talking to him about it. Anyways. <laughs> there we um, go. Okay, so the oil demand data, and everybody's talking about it. It's on Twitter. It's everywhere. So just Google IEA oil report, um, or 20, I, oil 2021. And essentially what it what it looks like is they show that we're, we go back, we dip, and then we come back. And then they show two scenarios in which they say their world energy outlook, they have a sustainable development scenario, and then they have a net zero by 2050 case. And within the sustainable development scenario, you have to basically be at 92 million barrels per day by 2025. So... We were at 90 for, for averaging for 2020 with the COVID crazy collapse and the shutting down of the economy, we were averaging 90. So basically, in four years from now, we have to repeat that again. Um, not going to happen. Roughly. And that that's kind of insane. It's so not going to happen. To say that that's just the easy scenario. Then the the real wicked one is in 2025. And let's don't even I mean get to 2030. It's, it's kind of it's ridiculous. Um, and by the way, they're, they're talking about net zero 2050, but we... We have a 2030. So 2030, the the easy case is the sustainable one. Um, is you basically drop down to 87 million barrels per day, which is, I mean, it's just that's that's 2030. I mean, in theory, maybe you could see something that doesn't look as unrealistic as the near term. But the world, the net zero scenario is 
under 80 million barrels per day by 2025 and um, 65 million barrels per day by 2030. These are insane numbers. And this is not a, because I grew up around the industry and I'm advocating for it. This is just math. And this is the data of that pre-COVID, we produced 100 million barrels a day of, of oil and we consumed 100 million barrels a day of oil. So let's just pretend that COVID happened and we permanently have shaved off 5 million barrels per day and we're in a 95 million barrel world. You know, that's that's what most guys would, would, would the, the skeptics would say where we're at. Okay, we never recovered to that. You have to shave off so much from that um, in a world that's already not flying and stuff. So that means no one ever gets to fly again because you would have to hit the, you have to, you know, curb jet fuel. And the, they say if you if you go through the numbers and you go through the data, they do bank this on on IMF's data. So they say that IMF basically shifted the trajectory down and and basically back up because of COVID that we have this permanent collapse. Historically, we also have done a poor job in one correlating GDP and, and oil growth. And we've also done a poor job in perfectly you know, analyzing GDP growth. In some countries it does more, some countries it does less. Um, you know, we've done a poor job thinking of population growth, like we're assuming we're gonna have a lot of population, we could be wrong on oil demand there. The data just came out, did you see that in France was uh, wicked, like we're not having, nobody had children in 20. We thought people were having children in 2020, but it turns out a lot of people aren't. That old fable about the New York blackouts producing a population boom, that did not happen in 2020. Yeah, so which was shocking. So that that's that's bad for oil demand. That stuff's very real. But the point is that they, if you go through the data and you go through all these things, the amount of electric vehicle sales skyrockets in a very short period of time to 60 million sales. And, you know, there's a great... Platts, I think one of their future energy podcasts is on auto market. It's really good. I'll find it. I'll put it. I'll we'll, we'll tag it on this. But great podcast to listen to. And they have a few people that are talking and and they're basically say, hey, this was going to be the bang. Twenty twenty was supposed to was supposed to be the bang up year for auto sales pre COVID before we got into all COVID and they were expected to go hit north of a hundred million auto sales, right? And, um, you know, EVs were supposed to be some chunk of that. And then what happened was we did, you know, COVID happened and we had a collapse and we did have record-breaking electric vehicle sales, mostly from countries which had subsidy, like uh, European countries and some from the US, largely on the back of subsidies. Um, but we also had record-breaking used vehicle sales. And that is just a, that, I think the New York Times had an article, or not even an article, it was a swipey thingy um, last week, um, that basically shows you the cars and how you would have to rid all the cars off the road. So essentially, you would have to come to um, you would have to come to my house and get my truck and get your your uh, vehicle outside, and you would have to take them off the road and then force us to get um, a new. I'm not even drive that much, but I mean, you would have to force us to get an electric vehicle to just change that. And I don't think that's going to happen in America. I don't I don't think that could happen anytime soon and I think that at least 50% of Americans and actually people that are um actually people that even support a lot of this stuff most of them have they have a, a internal combustion engine vehicle and they also have an electric vehicle as most consumers with electric vehicles don't usually have one car they have two because they still have range anxiety. Right. So that brings up I was on a clubhouse in an oil and gas room today. And the moderator was talking about the embedded hypocrisy. And we were talking about the the North Face incident where they, you know, number one, wouldn't sell uh, jackets to a firm called Innovex. Uh, the CEO, Adam Anderson, wrote a letter saying, hey, look, your inputs are all poly and uh, plastics that come from 
the oil and gas business. And yet you're hypocritically saying you won't make jackets for the business. And uh, I think, look, when push comes to shove, everybody who wants to use oil and gas products wants to keep using them. Uh, for example, there's a there's a group called Protect Our Winners. And I look and it's a who's who of outdoor gear manufacturers. And I went through the list and it's, you know, the North Face and Patagonia and Smart Wool and, you know, the manufacturing distribution and uh, it's ski. I mean, imagine a ski area that, you know, nobody gets there without fossil fuels. Uh, the lifts don't run without some sort of electric power that comes from a grid that's reliable. I've actually nev- I've never been skiing, but... Do you ever have a... I wouldn't a, say that. You live in Colorado. I mean, you can't say I that. know. I can't, it's really bad. I go, yeah. I snowshoe and stuff, and yeah. I've sledded a lot and taken a lot of four-wheelers on the snow, but I've actually never been, and snowmobile, but never been skiing. Do you, uh, vet, do you ever get off the slopes and go to a fireplace with um, either burned by wood or right. what, or natural gas? Or, oh, what the big boom is this year is propane heaters, which is really <laughs> exciting. You know, right. like everybody goes up. So I imagine in ski right. towns, there's a lot of a lot of use of natural gas. Yeah, it's very energy intensive. But the, the broader point there is not to bash... Um, POW or to bash any of these companies specifically because it's a societal problem. I mean, the best example is for me, the biggest climate hypocrite on the planet is Leonardo DiCaprio, right? He rents giant yachts to put his models on in the Mediterranean. He's on his private jet all the time. And yet he's out talking about climate change and he's got the biggest carbon footprint of any human who's ever lived, right? So that is emblematic of the inconsistency in the in which we think about the use and um, take for granted the use of oil and natural gas that really is the foundation and backbone of, of human civilization. And uh, look, these talking heads who are wealthy and in positions of power that fly their jets to Davos, um, they can't afford to double their input costs on oil and gas. A lot of people can't. And we've seen uh, demonstrations in France around higher uh, prices. There's a big conversation going on in Canada about what the right uh, price for carbon is. And so these issues, I think, become stickier. And my view is that there's complacency in the U.S. based on uh, a decade or more of fossil fuel subsidies and low prices that have come from overinvestment in the shale sector. Mm -hmm. And with that going away and rising prices, it will start to creep up as a political issue that even Democrats will have to handle when their constituents who are blue collar, who would otherwise be voting Democratic, look and see they're paying three and four dollars at the pump. And it doesn't matter how you get there, whether you're taxing oil and gas companies and raising the the marginal cost of production or whether you're taxing them at the pump. It's still going to be a political issue when people start to see highly regressive prices. And it is in Germany for power prices, for example. I mean, they're the the green revolution there has basically just produced two separate energy systems. You've got coal. About 30%. Yeah. I just checked, by the way. It's about 30 So they're, yeah. they've done decently on the emissions for a number of reasons, yeah. but they still they have a lot yeah. of coal. Like they they have got coal. coal. they got a coal-powered gen system, and then they've got a natural gas and solar system. Yep. And Alex Epstein would call that reliables and unreliables. And, you know, if you look at what happened in Texas, clearly the entire system failed. Mm-hmm. But there was... I don't and, think, I don't think he's f- listened to Robert and I's the, podcast. The f- <laughs> Should I have? Yes, <laughs> the, But the, the, the entire forecast was based on the presumption that renewables were going to only going to have a capacity factor of 20 or 30%. So you're starting at a deficit against 
things that run 80, 90% capacity factor, nukes and gas. And actually, you know, look, this is an oil and gas focused podcast, but I believe that if climate was really crisis, you would see most of the climate activists talking about the importance of nuclear power. And instead, that community is divided among people that want to drive nuclear out and those who recognize that that's the best baseload power source for no CO2. That's this. So this is why it's so important. And I do, you know, I, I had some friends listen to the podcast and they paid some really nice compliments in terms of the content. And I really do. I want to give listeners information so you can like it or dislike it. And you, you can disagree with it. That's fine. But I I really pride myself in like having a lot of facts and a lot of data and giving and explaining it to people. And I think this energy transition thing, the reason this bugged me so much is because of that. So if it was about CO2 emissions, then you wouldn't, you know, if if the Biden administration, you know, it, it's about CO2 emissions, then they are going to have to back off. And they may they may actually be backing off a little bit on oil and gas. We'll see if this this Reuters article and what's happening with the, you know, loosening or, or allowing permits to go forward. We'll see if that's actually real. I haven't, that's not what I'm hearing in DC. I have not confirmed that. Um, and I'm I'm still concerned that nothing I'm hearing in DC is positive all on oil and gas. However, what what's bothers me is that it is oil and gas production is 1% of US emissions. Um, so if it's about emissions, then it's not about the actual production. So then it would be about the end use. Well, then you would have to start off your administration by saying, we're curbing your, your end use of the product. And I don't think that's that's politically favorable. So you're not going to do that. And the problem is, and I've said this in multiple podcasts where I've been interviewed lately, is that the answer is, if this is about CO2 emissions, the answer is, I and I literally pulled up the data, and I know everybody says that you hear it in oil and gas podcasts a lot, in energy podcasts, is that it's about China and India. It is I'm sorry, it's it's about power and it's about coal and it is about China and India. So pull up the charts, like heaven forbid, BP has all the data, the data is out there. You can see exactly how much coal is consumed and, and how it's used. And in China, the fascinating thing is that, um, and I have been listening to, it's called Energy Transition Podcast. And I will invite my, if they want to have bring me on the podcast, I'd love to be on it because they, they struggle a little bit in terms of some of the oil and gas talk. But if you want to learn about different components of the business, it's great. Has I still think there's a little bit of a biasy, but this is an oil podcast, so we have, we have plenty of bias as well. But they talk about China and how they do a really good job of explaining, like they set a GDP number, right? And so China just came out with a five-year plan and we'll, we'll dovetail into this, but like they set a GDP figure and then they sort of, they, they don't, the government basically sets it and they let the local government municipalities like go hit it. And the part of that going to hit it is, the big piece of like why they have so much coal-fired power generation. I'm not certain that they don't use all the coal-fired power generation they have every single day. They're not running it at full mm-hmm. capacity. But if you just pull up, I mean, it was the, you know, that UN, that UN figure is the same thing I'm seeing from the BP data that I just threw into my data system is that China's CO2 emissions are like this. China's coal consumption is like this. And it's not just their coal consumption. And for listeners, that. that was up into the right. Yeah, sorry. Up into the right. <laughs> I'm using my hands a lot. And then the U.S. is declining. And the U.S., it's important to point out- Why is the U.S. declining? Well, so if you look at the charts, we are definitely the second largest emitter. Like India is coming up and, mm-hmm. and they're on a up, straight upward trajectory, but they emit a lot less than we do from a CO2 emission standpoint. So we're the second largest emitter. And that's what everybody points out and why we need to work on this up. Except we've been on a trajectory declining for, sev- for a decade. We've been declining in CO2 emissions. And you could argue, and I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that politicians would certainly argue that Trump didn't do jack to help on emissions. And yet the trajectory was still going down. It was going under down and Obama was going, so what is it? And it has to be that 
at the very basic level, it has to be that we swapped out a lot of coal for natural gas for power. That's it. And we still have, it's in terms of people think that oil and gas is like the low hanging fruit. It's not the low hanging fruit. Coal is the low hanging fruit. All you would have to do is take that $2 trillion of stimulus we had, and you could have went to China and India and you could have said, I'm just going to subsidize. I'm just going to do it for you. Let me just help you build those pipelines and swap some stuff. Sounds ridiculous. But honestly, if you were, if it was about CO2 emissions, I think that's what you would be doing. You would be going to China and India and you'd be saying, how can we work with you to reduce your coal consumption? And it's the reason you can't do that, that's not politically favorable. That's not politically viable. Also, it's really hard. When I'm talking about China setting their GDP targets and then and then the country's doing it, it's a huge piece of their economic growth story. One, it is reliable energy. It's secure. Um, and they produce a lot of it. So India produce, has a huge coal sector. And so it's a massive part of their economy. And it has went through decades of uh, going back and forth. India has some, they have some great uh, podcasts as well on the energy transition. And if you, they have went back and forth between private to public of being government owned coal. And that has complicated the structure and made it very embedded within the Indian system. So to just go remove it or to say that China is going to leapfrog, it's crazy. Um, the, the, the experts that I have at least listened to in the research I've done does not suggest that they are anywhere near removing coal anytime soon because it, it employs so many people. And there's kind of like a Indian mafia that's also part of the coal. It's it's very deep, it's very nuanced, um, and it's very messy. China, I would say, maybe a little bit less so because they have the ability to sort of build out this infrastructure. India also does not have all the pipelines in place to just grab the gas. You have to develop a lot of that. And then China is working on that. But I mean, they also are concerned about security supply. And so they import a lot of liquefied natural gas, but liquefied natural gas means that you have choke points around the world, just like you have for oil. And I don't think they want to be completely beholden to that. And so their recent five-year plan that they just outlined, actually, I think the media's done, I don't know, I, what, I haven't heard Bloomberg or CNBC talk about it in any detail, but it's certainly disappointed for, I think, at least if you're a hardcore academic and you're on the energy transition side, certainly disappointed from a okay. green side. Well, that is an excellent teaser for our next and and s- s- subsequent follow-on podcast since we're out of time for this episode. We are. We're going to stop here and we're going to uh, maybe have a real drink and then we'll come back for... Part two, St. Patty's Day juggernaut of Trisha getting wound up about things in the energy market. Which this is I good. Love. Yes, so we should have started this by explaining that um, we did explain the date and we did. This is a weekly podcast, um, but both Ethan and I are really busy lately. So we're going to do this is a part one and part two episode. Um, and there's plenty to talk about. And the Guinness is actually pretty damn good. So. All right. So we'll pause there. And then uh, if you want to talk, want to hear us talk about chevron and the china five-year plan we'll come back in the next episode so thanks for listening and we're out